Matthew chapter 15, starting in verse 21. This is on page 821. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for the opportunity to be in your presence with your people today, and we pray that as we start this process, that we we understand that this is a time that we don't need just an encounter with your word, but we need a spirit-governed and shaped encounter with your word. We need for you to do things that words alone from a preacher can't do. We need you to speak into our hearts, and we need you to teach us who you are. We need you to strip away layers of ideas that are faulty about who you are and how you work, and we need you to replace them with who you insist on being, and we pray that you would do that by your spirit today, that we would walk out of here with faith that is strengthened, love that is deepened, and a heart that is stretched. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you for standing with me. All right, so I want to share with you a quote here, and I typed it out, put it up there, and if you're sitting on the front rows, you can probably see this, and maybe if you have young eyes, you can see this from the back. Uh, Sorry. Can't see it? Oh, pastor's eyes are getting old. Sorry. Um, I'll give you this later if you need it, if you want it, but um, this was written by a man by the name of Dane Ortland. We actually have copies of this book. It's called Gentle and Lowly. Some of you have read it. Some of you haven't read it. If you haven't read it, you should read it. Let me read you this quote that he said. He said, the Christian life from one angle is the long journey. I like those terms. The long journey of letting our natural assumption about who God is over many decades fall away, being slowly replaced with God's own insistence of who he is. Let me repeat that for you again. Being slowly replaced with God's own insistence on who he is. This is hard work, he says. It takes a lot of sermons and a lot of suffering, and I would say a lot more suffering than sermons, to believe that God's deepest heart is merciful and gracious and slow to anger. The fall in Genesis chapter 3, he says, not only sent us into condemnation and exile, it also entrenched in our minds dark thoughts about God. Thoughts that are only dug out over multiple exposures to the gospel over many years. Then he says this. We tend to project our natural expectations about who God is onto him. Pay attention to this. Instead of fighting to let the Bible surprise us into what God himself says. Instead of fighting to let the Bible surprise us into what God himself says. Let me see if I can put that in a little bit different terminology. Basically, what he is saying is this, is that we tend to see God more as we are than as God is. 
Or I'll phrase it another way, and this may make some of you uncomfortable, and we can talk about all that later. But sometimes you get for, you get from God what you're looking for in God. Okay, this is an uncomfortable truth, but it is a truth nevertheless. And you can see this play out throughout the pages of Scripture. But what I understand about what he's saying here is about life does this to us, and it imposes upon us these faulty assumptions about God. But before us this morning in the Scripture is a text. Not an event in life, but a text in which you and, us, you and I must fight to let the Bible surprise us into what God himself insists on being. Like, this is a hard text. Did you feel the tension when we read it? Or were you too, too busy turning the pages trying to get there? Let me, let me get this. Just read verse 26 with me, if you will. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to who? That's very uncomfortable, is it not? Did you feel the tension here? You feel the bite in Jesus' word? I don't know about how you raised your children. Uh, we raised ours. We're still kind of trying to figure out if that worked or not. But one of the things we tried to keep them from doing is calling other people bad names. With me? And so this right here feels a little weird, a little out of place, a little awkward. This is Jesus who has a well-earned reputation for being kind and gracious and compassionate. If you go on down in the remainder of chapter 15, we will read him tell his disciples that I have compassion on the multitudes. We have read this over and over again in the scripture that Jesus, his heart beats with empathy and sympathy for the people who are broken around him. And then when you take this account, it just seems so odd. Rick doesn't remember because he has slept since then, but he said this, these words Wednesday morning in our study. He said, is it what it looks like? Is it what it looks like? Because if this text is what it looks like, then I must admit that this is very awkward. And this is very difficult. And here's why this is important for us to have texts like this. We need texts like this because we will have moments like this. As a matter of fact, we will have many moments in life like this where you and I must fight to believe that God is who he insists that he is. Because there will be moments that it just doesn't feel like he is that. And so I need texts like this where it's safe and the environment is controlled so I can wrestle some of these things out because who I believe God to be in the deepest part of my being will always determine whether I press into him or whether I pull away from him. And I want to tell you that one more time, okay? Who you believe God to be, not who you believe God to be when you're sitting in the church on Sunday morning, but I'm talking about who you deeply believe him to be when the bills aren't being paid and the house is falling apart and the relationship is falling apart. I'm talking about who do you believe him to be at the core of your being in the moment where you don't want to believe anything because what you believe about God in that moment will determine whether you press into him or whether you pull back from him, okay? So let's chase this out. We're going to nerd out for a minute in this text. Can we do that? You guys want to nerd out with me? So if you're in my community group, give me an aye aye. Okay, church family, let me tell you something about my community group. I told them I was going to tell you this. They're not, they're not surprised by this. They are all nerds. Every last one of them are nerds. They all read. Nerds. They're music nerds. They do math. One of them even speaks multiple languages and travels around the country. I don't know who that is, but he does it. Jack. Everybody knows who Jack is? Jack Moore? Chelsea Jordan, you guys know who Jack is? How old is Jack? Five. Jack's a nerd, too. Sitting at the table Wednesday night, he's doing math Thursday night. He's doing math at the table. Nobody does math on a Thursday night except nerds. Nerds do math, okay? So I feel 
like an island of normal in a sea of nerds. To which the nerds would say, if you're the island, maybe you're not normal, right? So I leave community group and I go home and guess what I go home to? Nerds. My wife is a nerd. She reads too. Silly, silly, silly. My sons are nerds. One of my sons is majoring in philosophy. Nerd. Nerd. My other son, he's a nerd. Music nerd, math nerd. They're all nerds. He married a nerd. (laughs) Nadine is a nerd. I'm not trying to say anything about the Bradley family, but they have an inordinate love affair with Excel spreadsheets. (laughs) Just saying. The evidence is there for nerds. We're going to nerd out on some scripture. My community group will tell me this. You are a nerd too. You just nerd out about different things. Touche, pussycat, touche. <laughs> That's right, come join us. So, oh, yes, yes. Don't, I don't want to scare you away. We want to nerd out on this text just a minute, and we, and we want to do that. We play with it a little bit, but we want to do good work so we come to good conclusions. Don't be afraid of doing good work with the scripture, okay? So I'm going to have some help. I'm going to have you help me. Uh, I'm going to put some things up here on the board so you can kind of follow along so you don't have to remember it. Um, that's not a board. That's a screen. That just shows you how old I am. Um, I'm also going to have some people read some scripture for me, okay? So here's what happens in this text. Let's read it again. And Jesus went away from there, and he withdrew to a district called what? Tyre and Sidon. Anybody know where that's at? Okay. Somebody said north. It's north, and it's to the west of Israel and Jerusalem, okay? It's kind of on the outer boundaries of Israel. Um, it's actually a place that's been conquered by Alexander about 300 years before this, um, which I've learned from watching a documentary at 2 o'clock in the morning. Um, nerd. <laughs> touche, pussycat, touche. <laughs> okay, yeah, you got me. Okay. Hey, when you're older, you start watching, when you're an older man, fellas, just amen me if I'm right, you start watching all these war documentaries, and you don't even know why. And you can't sleep at night and all that kind of stuff. Okay, so anyways. And Jesus went away from there and he withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a what? A Canaanite woman. Anybody familiar with this term Canaanite? Does it draw any memories for you? Somebody, what are the memories? Canaan, the land of Canaan. Okay, who were they? We're stumped. They were Gentiles. Okay, Israel is going to take over a land and it's called the land of? Canaan. They're going to drive out the Canaanites and all the other ites, right? Everybody remember the story and all the preacher jokes that every preacher has made since the beginning of time? And so this is what is happening. This is a Canaanite woman. She's called a Greek by Mark because of Alexander's work there, but she is a Canaanite woman. And Matthew's writing to the Jews, and he wants us to pay attention to this. So what is the big deal about Tyre and Sidon? There's all kinds of things here, but what we need to understand is this, is that it is a, it is a place with a past, but it is also a place with a future. Okay, Christ is going to do some great things in Tyre and Sidon. He's just not doing them yet. Well, depends on your interpretation, right? Somebody read for me Isaiah chapter 49 and verse number 6. Isaiah chapter 49, verse number 6. I want you to read it loud. We're going to do this a couple of times because what this text does is it confronts us with what Jesus thinks of those who are not his own. What does Jesus think about people who are not like him, who are Gentiles? Who are of other nations? If somebody is there at Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, read that for us. Okay. 
You will bring my salvation to where? To the ends of the earth, to the Gentiles. Revelation will follow up on this and say every tribe, tongue, and nation, okay? This is a prophecy about Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and it's telling him that he will not only... Matter of fact, God says to his servant, who's Jesus, he says, is it too small a thing, too big a thing for me to give you Israel? I'm not just going to give you Israel. I'm going to give you the world. It's going to be your kingdom, every tribe, tongue, and nation. So what I need to understand about Jesus is this, is that he has a heart for all people. He has a heart for who? Say it with me. All people, okay? So we have, a, we have a place here that has a past and a future. We have a promise that he keeps. Verse number 24, read this. Jesus answers to his disciples, and he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, I'll give you, somebody look to Romans chapter 1, verse 16. And while you're turning there, I'll kind of give you a little lowdown on what he means here. Jesus is not quoting an Old Testament text word for word. But he is quoting a promise that is repeated throughout the pages of the Old Testament. And that promise is this, that the Messiah would be born to the people of Israel. That he would be a Jewish Messiah. It is so distinctly Jewish that sometimes it makes Americans uncomfortable. Okay? But you need to understand that when the Bible says, For unto us a child was born, and unto us a son is given, who is the us? We read that every Christmas and we think it's us. And by extension, it is us. But by immediate interpretation, it is them. It is the people of Israel. Okay, somebody read Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Nerd, reading like that. Good job, Bo. Man, that's impressive, isn't it? Reads better than me. Um, he said it's the salvation, the power of God, and the salvation to who? Jew first, and then also to the Greek. Not the Jew only, but the Jew first. Okay? Now, here's why this is important for us to understand. Because God's kingdom, Christ's kingdom, is going to be for all nations, but it will be through one nation the people of Israel, okay? And so it's going to come to the world, but through a people. God works through a people. Now, here's why that's important for you and I. We don't want a God who keeps his promises only to us. We want a God who keeps his promises to all, even if they're to us indirectly or have nothing to do with us, okay? Nathan says he had different motives. I told him I was going to use this, but a few weeks ago, I had thunder tickets. I said, Nathan, you want to go with me? Nathan said, yes, let's go to the thunder game. And then he calls me the next day, and he says, I can't. He's a quitter. He's not a nerd. He's just a quitter, okay? He tells me I can't go, but here's what he tells me. He tells me I can't because I told my kids I would take them to the Thunder game, and now that they found out you're going to the Thunder game with me, they're not happy. And so he says, I'm not going to go. So what did Nathan do? Nathan kept his promise to his kids. What kind of pastor do you want? You want a pastor who just keeps some promises? Or do you want a pastor who keeps eh, most of them, right? Okay, I want a God who doesn't just keep his promises to me. I want a God who keeps his promises to Miss Sally, to Robbie, to you guys. I want that kind of God, right? And so by him saying, I'm sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, I need to understand that he's keeping a promise that is centuries old, and that's good for me, okay? There's also an evil which he hates. 
The woman comes to him, and what does she say in verse number 22? Somebody read it out loud. Her daughter is what? Severely oppressed by a demon. Parents, you ever thought your kid was severely oppressed by a demon? Come on, let's just be honest. Some of you are like, yes, yes. You learned that it wasn't, right? Some of them have demonic tendencies, right? But they're probably not demonic, right? So she comes and she says, she, my daughter is severely oppressed. This is not the first time we meet Jesus dealing with demon possession in the book of Matthew. And what I want you to understand about Jesus and demons and evil, by the way, the whole world has believed that there is evil. For all of humanity's existence, we have believed that there is an evil sometimes that we cannot explain or attribute to things, that there is just this bigger, bigger evil that we don't know how to... Jesus believed in a real evil. And do you know what he thinks about evil? Somebody read Hebrews chapter 2, verse number 14. Read it loud. Because I want you to understand this, and I want you to believe this. I want you to understand what Jesus thinks about evil and the one who creates this evil. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Good job. Who's he going to destroy? The devil. Why is he going to destroy the devil? Because it is the evil that he hates. If you ever wanted to know what Jesus thinks about the enemy, Jesus hates the enemy and the evil that he, hate, that he causes. That's okay to say. We're safe with that. We want a God like that, okay? And so here's what I understand about Jesus. He's in a place that has a past and a future. He's keeping a promise to his people that have his centuries old. He's encountering an evil that he hates deeply. And then there is this child. And sometimes I think we read Bible stories and we think that it's just kind of make-believe and it's pretend, but we're supposed to feel the weight that this is a literal child. And she's severely possessed by a demon. So if you're having trouble kind of picturing that, picture your own child. What does the mother say, by the way, in verse number 22? Have mercy on my daughter. Why would she say me and not my daughter? Mamas answer that because mamas tend to feel pain for their children that those of us who aren't mothers have a difficult time comprehending. Do you feel the weight that's on her right now? She's coming to Jesus and she's talking about my daughter and we know what Jesus believes and thinks about children. You know what Jesus thinks about children, right? You can turn over a couple of pages in Matthew chapter 19 and little children will be coming to Jesus and the disciples will say, no, don't let them. And what will Jesus say? Oh, let him come to me. Let him come to me. Jesus loves children. He's not disturbed by their noisiness or their messiness or their filthiness or their craziness, right? He loves children. So put all this together now, okay? He's in a place with a future. He's, he's battling an evil that is real and that he hates. There is this child whom he loves. And then there is this mother, okay? And she obviously feels this. And there's so much that we could talk about with this mom, but she is this Canaanite woman. She is all of this stuff. But listen to what Jesus says in verse 28. He said to her, O woman, 
Great is your what? Faith. Do you know what we've been talking about with this woman for years and centuries? Her faith. Because Jesus commended her for her faith. It's not about where she's from or what she was encountering or what she was battling. Jesus looks at this woman and he sees her faith. And my, listen, this is remarkable. The only other time Jesus speaks of great faith is to the centurion, who is also a Gentile, by the way, whose servant that Jesus healed. And so what is happening here, for all that she is, she's, she's assuming her child's pain. She says in verse 22, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. Listen to what she says in verse 24, uh, or, or sorry, I'm sorry, she says in verse number 25. She came and she knelt before him. Some versions will read that she worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. If you didn't know this, verse 24 is a good prayer for every day. There's never a day when it's not okay to say, Lord, help me. Okay? And so this is what she does, and she's feeling all of this. But I want you to just think about what this woman does. It is her faith that is remarkable, because even in spite of everything that goes on in this text, she believes that Jesus is a kind and merciful and able Savior. Like all the things that are stacked against her. This is what he says. You are a woman of remarkable faith. She believes this. Contrary to everything that is going on in her life. And she believes this at a moment when her child is being tortured by a very real evil. She believes that Jesus alone has the power and the capacity and the compassion to do something about it. This is what she believes. She believes in a merciful, a kind, an able rescuer. For all that she is, she is a woman of faith. Pay attention to this. This is important. She refers to him in verse number 22 as the son of who? The son of David. That's a Jewish promise. That's a messianic title. What that means is that she believes a messianic promise given to the Jews. Something that the Jews were struggling themselves to believe. Now think about this. She probably wasn't saturated in the same schools that the Jewish kids were saturated in. She didn't have the same text. She didn't have the same resources. She didn't have the same teaching or the same training. And the Jews who Jesus is encountering day after day are struggling to believe him, to be the heir to David's throne. And this woman comes up and she says, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. She believes that he is the Messiah. This is important for us to understand. Now watch this. This is beautiful. Notice what Jesus does in verse 23. This is a hard one. But he did not answer her a word. Have you ever felt the silence of heaven? She asked and he didn't answer. And yet still she comes. This is mind-blowing to me. Jesus doesn't answer her in verse 23, and still she worships. Allow that to sit in your soul. She persistently seeks him when he is silent. She worships him before he answers. She worships him while her daughter is hurting. That's a different kind of worship, right? You with me? While her daughter is hurting, she worships the king. This is faith. This is what she believes. Even when Jesus does answer her in verse 26, it seems harsh and insensitive at the very least, and yet she doesn't take offense. And listen, people have been offended by Jesus for far less than this woman, like far less than this woman, and yet she doesn't take offense at his words. 
She doesn't resist. She doesn't argue. She doesn't argue his design or defend herself. If Jesus called you a dog, be honest. Or maybe he didn't. Maybe he did some trickery with words. I don't know. But what would you think? What would you think if just somebody in this church walked up to you and called you a dog? You're not barking. That's not what your response is going to be, right? This is harsh. This is a little bit, at least insensitive is what it seems like. And yet she doesn't defend herself. She doesn't argue against his design to go to Israel first. She says, I'm not even asking for the children's food. I'm asking for the crumbs they don't want. You remember? Everybody remember feeding your kids? And you put all this food up there for them and they don't eat it? Nicole once cooked broccoli in brownies just so Micah would eat broccoli. Now the kid's a vegetarian. Um, And I... I guess it worked, right? (laughs) Who knows, right? But you put all this up there, and and she says, I don't need that. I'm not coming to you. This is beautiful. Listen to me. She tells Jesus that I didn't come to you for what I deserve. I came to you for mercy. I'm not entitled to what I'm asking for. I'm asking for mercy. Mercy is different than what I deserve. And then she says, just give me the crumbs. She thinks that the crumbs of his power are enough to heal her daughter. This is faith. This is great faith. She seeks him when he is silent. She worships him before he answers. She submits to him when he is confusing. She trusts him when it is extremely difficult to trust him. This is what faith is. She doesn't blame him. She doesn't accuse him of unkindness. She refuses to think ill of Jesus. She refuses to think ill of Jesus when most of us would have thought ill of him long ago. Listen, she doesn't argue the design. She believes that in spite of all of these things, he is willing and able to heal her daughter. My friend, if you ever wanted to know what faith is, that is faith. That is faith, a resolute adherence to Christ as being all-wise and completely sufficient in spite of all of the things that say he's not. That's what faith is. And this woman, I mean, she had fewer opportunities than the Jews. She had fewer privileges than the Jews. She had greater obstacles with Jesus, it seems. And yet still she sees him as kind and merciful and able. You remember what I told you? Sometimes you see Jesus as you are. And sometimes by his grace, we see him as he is. So, now if you put all of this together, he's keeping this promise. There's an evil which he hates. There's a child which he loves. There's a woman who he commands with faith. That's what makes this, this text so difficult. Why in the world, if all of this is true, does Jesus act in the way that he acts? I mean, it seems at the very least like this is out of character for him, right? It almost seems cruel towards her from my perspective. His tone is not what I prefer. The words that he uses are not words that I would use. You ever, you know those people who like when they start talking, you just hope that they don't say what you know they're about to say, right? You know what I'm talking about? Don't, don't nudge your neighbor or your spouse, by the way. But you know what I'm talking about, right? You just know that if they start talking, they're going to say something very insensitive. Jesus is not that guy. But here it seems that this is insensitive. Is he reluctant? Is he resistant? Is he putting up a fight? 
Is he using a racial slur? Is he degrading and dehumanizing this woman? Is this racism or sexism that has been imposed upon his human side that he must overcome and grow out of? What in the world is happening here? At the very least, you and I have to admit that this is a difficult text. So, because this is a hard text, some people have sought to soften the bite of Jesus' words. They've attempted to soften what he's saying here. Others have imposed meanings on the text that just don't align with the whole of Scripture. And why that is is because we have this temptation to read our world into the text rather than reading our world by the hero of the text. Let me say it to you again. We have a temptation of reading our world into the text rather than reading our world by the hero of the text. Now, here's the problem. Jesus doesn't look heroic here. He doesn't. And we can't shy away from that because even here, we're meant to learn him deeper, to have layers of faulty understanding stripped away and to have our images reshaped by who he insists that he is. So let me give you a couple of tips on dealing with hard text, okay? And I'm not going to give you these. I'm not going to explain all these. I'm just going to give them to you, write them down, use them for later. Because there are hard texts in the Bible. Did you know that? There are hard texts in the Bible. Here's what you do when you come to a hard text in the Bible. You own up to the assumptions that you brought to the text. This is hard for us to do. But I want to, I just, I'm going to be honest with God and I'm going to be honest with myself that there are some things here that I don't like, don't understand, don't get, and I see differently. Can I tell you something that God is not afraid of your honesty? As a matter of fact, we'd probably be better off if we were just a tad bit more honest with him instead of trying to pretend like we're not. Or that we're something better than we are. Have you ever prayed in that way? You know that tone? That sounds really spiritual. But you know down in the depths of your being you're anything but spiritual. What if rather than praying in the tone that sounded spiritual, what if we just own the fact that we're broken? Would God be turned off by your brokenness? Would he be turned off by you, the fact that I don't get what you're doing here? I don't understand what you're saying here. I don't, I'm not processing what's happening here. Listen, be honest with yourself. That fosters humility. Don't ignore the difficulties of the text. Don't suppress them. Don't resist them. Be honest with God about the text and its difficulties. Here's the second thing that you do when you come to a hard text. You don't impose a meaning on the text that isn't clearly provided by the text. This is, listen, uh, the great theologians would call this inscrutability or transcendence. Anybody familiar with those words? Basically, it means this, that if God is infinite and we are finite, following, then the infinite might just do some things that the finite do not understand. You all right with that? Okay, I want a God who's bigger than me. And I want a God who acts, in, and sometimes I have to leave room in the scripture for him to do things that I don't understand. We all have inherited patterns of reading the text. And we have to be careful not to impose meaning that isn't there. And here's the last thing I'll give you on reading hard text. Frame what isn't clear by what is abundantly clear. Anybody ever heard me use this phrase, stand where the ice is thick enough to hold you up? Okay, you've heard me say that. I like to take credit for it, but I didn't come up with it. Um, Great, great preacher gave that to me a long time ago. And it basically means this, that we do not interpret the exceptions in the Scripture We do not interpret the whole of Scripture by the exceptions in the Scripture. We interpret the exceptions in the Scripture by the whole of the Scripture. Okay? We do not interpret the one, the whole by the one. 
but the whole, the one by the whole. Does anybody understand what I'm trying to say? Because I'm not having the ability to do it right now. Okay? And that's what we're doing here, okay? We want to frame what isn't clear. So there's a lot of things in this text that I don't understand, that I don't get. I'm honest with God about it. I don't want to impose meaning on the text that's not there. And I want to let what the scripture is clear about frame for me what the scripture isn't clear about. That's why we read all these texts. And there would be others. Do you know that this isn't the first time Jesus dealt with a Gentile? And he doesn't deal with all Gentiles this way. It's not the first time that he deals with a woman. And he doesn't deal with all women this way. So it's not that he's just broken against people who aren't like him. Or against people who are viewed as lesser than in his society. That's not what's happening here. We could read over and over how Jesus is offensive to just about everybody. We, we read over this in the scriptures. But do you know he, who he just offended just a few verses before? He offended the Pharisees. And do you know why we didn't catch that one? Because we like it when he offends the Pharisees. We like it when he offends them. They need to be offended, right? We don't like it when he offends a mother. He's going to offend a rich man in a couple of chapters who he's going to tell to go and sell all that he has and give away to the poor, and the rich man is going to leave away sad. And if you're poor, you're okay with him offending the rich man. If you're rich, you might not be. Here's what you will get with a plain and simple reading of the scripture. You will get the fact and the impression that Jesus often acts in ways that people do not understand and do not appreciate. Sometimes he is actually offensive. And so I keep all of that in mind. But I don't just keep that in mind. I keep some other verses. Turn back a couple of pages to Matthew chapter 11. Verse 28, come unto me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly where? In heart. Do you know what that means? It means that his most natural instinct is to be merciful. This may be perhaps the only place where Jesus describes what he is at heart, at the core of his being. And what he's telling us here is this, is at the core of his being, he is merciful. The only thing the scripture says that he is rich in is he is rich in mercy. It is the most natural bent of his heart, the most natural movement of his heart. And so her coming to him and asking him for mercy does not go against his wishes. It flow with his wishes. Do you understand that? Jesus is merciful. Go back to Psalm 84. You need to read this because we need to frame this by what we do know. Go back to Psalm 84. You got to turn fast. You got to beat me. This is that old sword drill right here. I didn't mark my scripture so that I would give you a fighting chance. Psalm 84, verse number 11, and then we're going to go to Psalm 34, and we're going to read them. The Super Bowl doesn't start till 5.30. We got time, right? Okay. Listen, verse number 11, for the Lord God is a sun and a shield. He bestows favor and honor. No good thing. How many good things? None will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. God is not a God who withholds mercy. He is not a God who's reluctant or resistant to give mercy. Go to Psalm 34. 
This is a good one. Man, this is a good one. Psalm 34. Let's read verse number 9. For all you Shane and Shane fans, you may only hear this in the Shane and Shane version, but this was, this was David long before this was Shane and Shane. He says, Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have what? No lack. How much lack? None. Let's read verse 10. The young lions suffer want and they hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good things. Skip down to verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. His ears are toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears them and he delivers them out of what? All of their troubles. The Lord is near to the broken heart and he saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them. All he keeps all his bones and not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate righteousness will be condemned. But the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those, none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Do you know what the whole of Scripture teaches us? The whole of Scripture teaches us that God is abundant in mercy. He is not reluctant. He is not resistant. And this woman, in spite of everything that is stacked against her, believes this about him. She lives as if this is true. She engages Jesus as if he actually is good to all. And so this is mind-blowing here. So I frame what's happening in this text by those things that we know from the whole of Scripture. So i got to go quick. Here's a couple of things that are happening in this text, and you need to know them. Okay? And I'll land this plane. Number one, he's teaching her to trust in spite of the obstacles. He's drawing out faith in this woman. And this is a, a beautiful task. But he's, he's not turning her away or being brutal to her. He's developing true and sincere faith. There is a lot of pretend faith in Jesus' world. There is a lot of pretend faith in our world. With me? And Jesus is drawing out deep and genuine and real faith. He was building in her a faith that would take deep root and last. Here's something that you must understand. Jesus does not have to be convinced to be merciful, but you and I do have to learn to trust in spite of all obstacles. We do. If you don't know this about faith, faith has obstacles, and faith is meant to overcome those obstacles. You remember the paralytic who was carried in on the pallet? How did they get him in? Through the roof, right? Somebody tore the roof open. You remember the lady who had the issue of blood? How was she healed? She had to press through an entire crowd. You remember Lazarus? How did he get out of the tomb? He didn't magically walk. That was a pretty, that's kind of what you pictured Lazarus doing, right? Somebody rolled the stone away. Do you understand this? That everybody in scripture who has faith must overcome obstacles by that faith. That is what faith does. Faith does not take deep root in us if there are not obstacles to form its depth. Just doesn't. We would prefer an easy faith. We would prefer a resurrection power without a death. But that is not how this works. And so Jesus is teaching her to lay hold on him who is merciful in a way that does not let go. He's also preparing his disciples to love those who are not like them. While he's working with this woman in her faith, he's also teaching his disciples that, hey, you are also going to be a light to all people. 
Do you know who he's going to get the gospel to? The whole world. Do you know who he's going to get the gospel to the whole world by? His people, his disciples. His disciples are deeply Jewish. They're probably more Jewish than you and I are very comfortable with. They have years, I'm talking years, of superiority and separation built into them. And it is going to take such a great work of God in their heart for them to get outside of the people who are like them. And that is exactly what Christ is doing here. He is showing them real living faith by not one of their religious leaders, by not somebody who knows the law, by not somebody who washes their hand and keeps themselves clean. He is showing them somebody who has real faith, who doesn't even believe the same things they believe. Do you see that? He's teaching his disciples. Another truth you and I must understand is that he does not have to be convinced to spread his kingdom to every tribe, tongue, and nation, but do we do have to learn to love those who are not like us? It's just reality. Let me give you one other thing. I'm going to land this plane. He is acting in infinite and wisdom and abundant mercy. In spite of what my senses are telling me in this text or my knee-jerk reaction to his words and his actions are, I don't want you to miss what he actually is doing here in this text. He hears her Listen to me. He hears her when she thinks he doesn't. You see the verse 23? He answered her not a word, but he did hear it. He did. And so when she thought he was silent, he was listening. Do you hear me, people of God? When you think he isn't, when it feels like he isn't, he is. He's working when it seems like he's not. He's faithful when it seems like he's not. He's merciful when it seems that he's harsh. He never refuses her. Do you, did you miss this? He never once refuses her. He never once sends her away. Martin Luther said there is far more yes than no in this text. It is just much deeper than we prefer. She is not convincing Jesus to be merciful to her. She is laying hold on him who already is merciful. None of his movements are here or because he despises her or because of his ingrained cultural bias. Every movement, every word, every action is precisely because he loves her. It is precisely because he loves her. Every movement is guided by his infinite wisdom and his abundant mercy. And so what I met with in this text, as somebody shared with us a few weeks ago, if I have ears to hear, and if you don't have ears to hear, I'm just going to be honest with you, you're not going to see this in Jesus. But what I met with in this text is a Jesus who is too wise to be mistaken and too good to be unkind. Too wise to be mistaken in his dealings with this woman and too good to be unkind. I want to tell you what I'm also confronted with in this text. I am confronted with my need to dictate the terms of my relationship to God. And this is in me more than I would like to admit. I, I really hate this. I feel like God and I are on the same page a whole lot more than we may be. And there are times where I want to dictate to him the way he should act, the way he should move, and the way that he should have his being, as if I was in charge of this whole show. You with me? And texts like this, when he does something that I don't think he should do, or when he acts in ways that I don't understand or even don't agree with, that has to be confronted in me. That has to be surrendered by me. Because here is the truth, people of God, and I need you to hear me. You can attempt to dictate life or you can trust God, but you cannot do both. 
You cannot do both. You cannot dictate the terms and trust him. He will often act in ways that you do not get, that you do not agree with, and that you do not understand. But he will never act in ways that are unwise or unkind. Never. And so in this, the Jesus that frames my existence must be the Jesus who is too wise to be mistaken and too good to be unkind. And so for me personally and for us as a people, do we frame our existence and the details thereof by this Jesus? Do I process and interpret my life through the framework of a Christ who is too wise to be mistaken and too good to be unkind? Do I grasp that every detail of my life is governed by the one who is rich in mercy, who never has to be convinced to be for me? I never have to twist Jesus' arm to be for me. Never. It is his most natural desire to love. And this is so fundamentally important for living faithfully and fruitfully because there is a time when it appears that he is silent. There are many times where it will appear that he is silent. And I will press into him rather than pull away from him only if I confidently believe that his apparent silence is actually an expression of his wisdom and mercy. When he doesn't answer me right away or when he doesn't act like I think he should, I will press into him only as I believe that even this course of action is an expression of his wisdom and mercy. You see, if I believe him to be too wise to be mistaken, if I believe him to be too good to be unkind, then all of my life, whatever my life is at the moment, will move me to press into him, not pull away from him. So how do I learn to believe that? Like that sounds great in sermons, right? Let's get honest, right? How do we learn to believe that? I think we do exactly what this woman did. We just keep coming and keep coming and keep coming and keep coming and keep coming until he answers. And every time that we come, every time there's an obstacle, I come to Jesus. Every time there's an obstacle, I come to Jesus. Because every time I come to him, it strengthens the faith that I have in him. You say, oh, preacher, I don't know. I got so much coming into my life. I read this this week. I don't get to decide who comes to my door, but I do get to decide who comes in and sits on my couch and stays. I don't get to decide what troubles I meet with, but I get to, I get to decide what occupies my mind and my heart. And I'm going to Jesus every time that something comes. And every time that something comes, what will happen is as I come to him, that faith will develop and strengthen and strengthen. So we had little mama over the weekend. Everybody knows who little mama is? She's back there talking. And as I'm preaching right now, my wife is literally turning her against me. It has happened so many times. And so I've got a lot of work to do. But yesterday we have little mama at the house. And and the kids have been gone for a couple hours now. And you can tell that she's starting to miss mama and daddy. You don't have to agree with it, little, little mama. And you can tell. And so Nadine and Isaiah show up at the door. They knock on the door. We open the door. And here's what she does. As soon as she sees Nadine, not Isaiah, <laughs> Nadine, she does this. Did you know that this is a learned behavior? You will never find a more natural expression, by the way, of the way humanity should live than this. Reaching for him. And do you know why she did that? Because she's learned through repeated experience and exposure that mama is safe, that daddy is safe. And even for some strange reason, while I had her yesterday and Nicole would walk by, she would do that to Nicole. 
I'm really disappointed and hurt and bitter today. I am. But she would just, like, she was trying to get away from me the whole time. The whole time. I will win her heart with chocolate milk. It's just, it just hasn't happened yet. Okay, we're going to come back. But here's the reality. You learn to trust God as you trust God. You will never learn to trust him by living in doubt. You won't. It's not how this works. So let me give you this. We'll land the plane here. The surest evidence of God's extravagant mercy to you is not your experience in life. Though there's ample experience, your interpreter is broken. The surest evidence is not your experience in life, but the laying down of his. If you ever want to know if he is rich in mercy, don't judge your life. Look at him laying down his. That's the evidence because it's not subjective. Subjective. Here's what I want you to know today. I want you to know that he is too wise to be mistaken. He is too good to be unkind. Stand together. Father, I hope that we have done good work in your word this morning, and I hope that your spirit will continue to minister it to us as we leave from this place. We've put a lot on the table. We're not afraid of that. We're not afraid of what you can do with that. We just pray that you would work in it what you long to work in it in each of us. Don't let us leave it. Don't let us leave the crumbs that you have allowed to fall to us on this day. Let us partake of them. Let us feed on them. Let us nourish ourselves on them. You are good, mighty Jehovah. You are good. You are too wise. Too wise. To be mistaken. You have never got anything in my life wrong. You are too good to be unkind. There has never been a moment that you have been unkind to me or to us. And I pray that that would reach the depths of our being. So when life gets hard and we don't understand, we would press into you and not pull away. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.